Welcome to the Ascend Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. Each week we delve deep with some of the brightest and most forward-thinking, out-of-the-box minds in health, consciousness, mindset, and spirituality. This show inspires our listeners to improve their body and mind, and our intention is to fuse and unlock the conscious warrior and shift the balance in the current paradigm. In this episode, we're joined by NASA physicist Tom Campbell. The belief closes your mind, not open it. So we want to get rid of beliefs and always remain skeptical uh, as well as open-minded of everything. Searching for the bigger picture is not really a big thing in our, in our culture. Culture doesn't really support that. That if you have a positive attitude toward the outcome, your and your uh, health you will get better than if you have a negative outcome evolution you know is a, is a machine that just slowly changes and changes it takes the output of the last change and that becomes the input you know for the next change and it just keeps going and eventually it will get to the most efficient and effective structure possible because you can play a much better game if you know what the rules are than if you're just wandering around clueless in the outfield, you know, wondering, what is this game anyway? What are, what are we supposed to be doing here? If it's not your experience, it can't be your truth. So you really do have to, to find out for yourself if this description of reality works for you. Hey, what's up everyone? In this episode of the Send Podcast, we're joined by NASA physicist Tom Campbell. This was a really powerful conversation and we really covered some great and interesting stuff in this podcast. However, each week we have very deep conversations with all different types of people. From the Iceman Wim Hof, inspirational and motivational speaker Prince Ear, UFC fighter Carlos Condit, to Stephen Keahy as who spent 10 years being the bodyguard of the Dalai Lama. Now, if a NASA physicist taught you that reality is fundamentally comprised of information and we live in some virtual reality, what would you think? But Tom doesn't just want you to take his word for it. He wants you to have your own experience. Tom actually began researching altered states of consciousness with Bob Monroe at the Monroe Laboratories in the early 1970s, where where he and a few others were instrumental in getting Monroe's laboratory for the study of consciousness up and running. And these guys were actually the early um, drug-free conscious pioneers that helped design experiments, develop the technology for creating specific um, altered states of consciousness, and where they were also the main subjects of the study as well, i.e. being guinea guinea pigs, all at the same time. But Tom has been experimenting with and exploring the, um, the subjective and objective mind ever since, for the past 30 years actually. And now Tom has been focused on scientifically exploring the properties and boundaries and the abilities of consciousness. Tom is a serious explorer of the frontiers of the reality, mind, consciousness and psychic phenomenon. In his book, My Big Toe is a model of existence and reality that is based directly on Tom's scientific research and first-hand experience and it represents the results and conclusions of 30 years of careful scientific exploration of the boundaries and contents of reality from the both physical and metaphysical viewpoints. His approach and explorations are without 
bias or preconceived notions. There is no belief system, no dogma or unusual assumptions at the root of Tom's theory. There is so much talk all over people saying that the earth is flat, no the earth is round. But just like Alan Watts and Nikola Tesla said, what if it's something else? So in this podcast, we dig into Tom's theory that we live in a virtual reality. And before we jump off this podcast, also please don't forget to leave the view of the podcast and just let us know what you think. And I know you're all going to find this one very interesting. And please walk into this one with an open mind, as it's the only way you're, you're going to learn and grow. So without further ado, Tom Campbell. How, how are you feeling today, Tom? You okay? Yeah, I'm doing just fine. Great, sweet. So, Tom, I'd just like to say thanks for being with us today and welcome to the podcast. Okay, you're very welcome. I'm, uh, I'm pleased to be here. Tom, I think maybe a good way to start this would be to go into how you basically developed a theory of everything. How does somebody do that? <laughs> uh, slowly and over, uh, over a long uh, number of years is how somebody does that. Um, uh, I had the advantage of combining the two viewpoints of the world, I guess, or two perspectives and, and two uh, sets of science and, and uh, understandings to actually make sense of how this uh, world works. And those two are physics. I'm a physicist by training. And the other was uh, I had an opportunity to work at Monroe Laboratories very early on and study consciousness. So with uh, one foot in each of those two uh, uh, disciplines, I was able to kind of bring them together into one understanding and that uh, spans both of them. So this understanding not only explains the subjective, it explains the objective. It explains um, ex- all sorts of experience, uh, not just uh, the objective experience, say, of science, but it does explain that objective experience as well. It uh, derives quantum mechanics, relativity, and um, uh, now, uh, and also the, the speed of light is a constant. And recently to that list, I've added uh, the uh, nature of uh, chaos in uh, our, uh, in our uh, physical reality and how chaos plays in the parts of uh, physics and biology and other sciences. That's, Chaos theory being something that was uh, started in probably the 1980s and 90s, maybe the 70s as far as some of the seminal work, but basically it's an 1890s, eight, you know, 1990s to 2000 uh, is when most of it uh, took place. But anyhow, so it explains physical reality um, and in some ways better than our science does because scientists now still don't understand why quantum mechanics, you know, works the way it works, and they don't really understand why uh, light speed should be a constant. And there's a lot of other things that are paradoxical in physics that aren't well understood. And this theory uh, brings good logical understanding to those things. And in the theory of, of uh, and practice of consciousness, it brings a lot of light to that as well, which includes uh, all of the metaphysical disciplines like ontology, um, uh, epistemology, even uh, theology can be included uh, in that group. 
So it, uh, I call it a big toe because it's not just about physical reality. Uh, toe was uh, first thought of as, as uh, being something that would pull um, an overarching understanding together to explain both quantum mechanics and relativity. And that was a toe, T-O-E, theory of everything, with yeah. the idea that if we understood, if we could derive uh, quantum mechanics and relativity from some other more basic, more fundamental set of principles, then those set of principles would basically uh, allow us to uh, uh, explain everything. Well, that meant just everything that was objective and physical. But mine's a big toe because it goes beyond objective and physical. It also is a theory of consciousness, which is, of course, subjective. So I just happen to be in the right place at the right time with the right set of... Uh, um, credentials and education to bring those two worlds together. And as it turned out, consciousness, of course, is the more fundamental of the two. So once you understand consciousness, then deriving physics is a kind of, it's just a natural uh, logical consequence of understanding consciousness. Tom, would you say it was just your search for answers and looking for the truth, would you say as well? Oh, yes. Uh, you know, that's, that's kind of basically uh, the way yeah. science works. You know, being a physicist, what I do is try to figure out how the world works. And that's um, kind of my personality through and through. You know, I'm a, I'm a scientist and I want to know how does it work? Uh, why does it work that way? Uh, are there limitations to how it works? Are there exceptions? You know, what else can it do? You know, all these basic questions of trying to find the, the truth of the matter. What is real? What is fact? Uh, as opposed to what is just in your imagination. It's that kind of a drive that makes a scientist really a scientist. Yeah. I think when we really think about what we know as well, it's not a lot about life, the universe, and much more. And most of it's just what culture make us believe. But I think when your mind is open, we really find out more. Oh, yeah, that's the case. We, we have a lot of beliefs. And yeah. cultural beliefs make up a large set of those beliefs. We have scientific beliefs, too. And, uh, of course, there's religious beliefs and personal beliefs. There's a lot of things that we believe. And belief turns out to be probably the number one enemy uh, in, in many ways. Because if you believe something to be true, then you stop looking for evidence to the contrary. So you get stuck with that belief. The belief itself insulates itself from ever uh, finding out uh, more about that that subject, your belief closes. The belief closes your mind, not open it. So we want to get rid of beliefs and always remain skeptical, uh, as well as open-minded of everything. Mm, definitely, uh, I believe like the power of thought is like ours and ours alone. And if we let our thoughts be ruled by other external factors we will like become a part of other people's manufactured fears and desires. Absolutely. Tom, why do you think people don't look to this understanding of a higher consciousness? Why they don't? Explain what you mean by that. Um, like, why do people not really search for this higher consciousness? Why the such a level playing field? Uh, well, you know, people are very consumed with their everyday uh, uh, Challenges you know, with uh, you know, their families, their relationships, their finances, their jobs. Uh, all of this tends to take people's 
focus away from big picture concerns. Now I call those the, the first list of things that, you know, the finances, the jobs, the relationships, all of that is what's going on in the little picture. That's what's happening here in this physical reality. And for most people, that's, that's all that they think about. They don't really ask big questions like why, why is it like that? Why am I here? You know, what's the point and the purpose? How can I tell right from wrong? Um, you know, what, what are the, what are the facts of life and what are the beliefs of life that I gain, you know, from my culture, from my religion, uh, from, uh, you know, just the viewpoint that uh, I have about the way things work. So they don't ask those big questions because those big questions just don't seem to pay the mortgage or, uh, you know, uh, make the car payment or any of that sort of thing. So people don't, uh, spend a lot of time thinking about big questions. Now, that's just people in general. Some people do. Some people spend all their time thinking about yeah. the big questions. They're just drawn to that. They want to know, and they want to study. We call those people seekers. They uh, uh, can't get enough information because they have this need to find a bigger picture. They have this innate sense that there's something bigger in this reality than just them in this physical world. And they usually get to that point of understanding because of their own experience. They have experienced things that show them beyond a shadow of a doubt in their mind that reality is indeed bigger than just this physical world. And here we are, you know, chugging away, trying to make ends meet, that there's something more to life than that. And uh, these people are also seekers. But many just ignore that and chug, chug along on the everyday, uh, you know, material world, being good little consumers and, and uh, don't think too much about the, about the big picture. Yeah, I completely agree, Tom. But what would you say the first part of the journey is, like which someone needs to look at that opens them up to this high level of consciousness, let's say? Maybe what can someone do to create this within themselves? Well, I, uh, you know, it depends on the individual. Yeah. As to what it, how it is they approach this. Every individual approaches it very differently. If you happen to be, um, what we now call a, a left brain dominant person to where logical process is the only way you can, you can, uh, swallow information. If it doesn't make really good logical sense, then you can't process it. You know, you can't deal with it. Um, if you're that kind of a person, then you have a little harder time because there's not a lot out there written that uh, gets into metaphysics or big pictures that is completely rational and logical. There's a lot of assumptions and a lot of poetry and a lot of descriptions out there and uh, a lot of uh, hypotheses and conjecture, but not a lot of good science. Oh, there's some. When I say not a lot, you know, it's... I don't mean that there isn't any. There, there really is um, you know, a lot of things that are that are good science out there, like the science that uh, explains and and has uh, been studying remote viewing, and uh, the science that uh, looks at um, uh, you know the way mind affects matter, like the placebo effect. You know, there's been lots and lots and lots of studies done on the placebo effect and that sort of thing. So there is good science out there. On these uh, on these subjects, but it's it's not 
it's not the kind of thing that that most people seem to uh, seem to get hold of. Now, my books, the My Big Toe books, are different in that sense. They are logical process-oriented books. So the left brainers now have a a uh, on ramp, if you will, to this yeah. big picture thinking. Whereas before, they had to get it in terms of poetry, and for a logical process person, poetry just doesn't cut it. They they don't uh, they can't buy that. On the other hand, uh, for the for the right brain people, the ones who are more holistic thinkers, the ones who don't need logical process but kind of intuit the conclusions without logical process, they uh, they've always had lots and lots of on ramps to uh, the uh, metaphysics and to uh, understanding kind of the bigger scene, the bigger picture. But of course, being right brain, they never could really explain it to anybody else. It's all personal. It's their own intuition. And it's not uh, easily transferable except in metaphor and, and again, it's poetry. So mm. it's been a, you know, it's been a uh, kind of a tough ride for most of the uh, most of the left brain people. Now, on the other hand, you have religion, and religion is supposed to be about spiritual things, but it is so it is so dominated by dogma and necessary belief and creed and ritual and all that sort of thing that a lot of left brain people get turned off with all of that they just don't see the point in in that so that tends to appeal to some people who can find the spiritual within the religious and turns off those people who just don't see anything spiritual about the you know, the dogma and the, and the rituals and the creeds and that sort of thing. So that's why there's not, you know, that's why searching for the bigger picture is not really a big thing in our, in our culture. Culture doesn't really support that. Yeah. Mm. One, one theory that really interests us, um, Tom, is the simulation theory, and would like to break it down for our listeners. So we're in a computer, and let's say someone has pressed on an on button, and it's like running a computer? Yeah, think of it this way. Think of think of it this way. Uh, uh, we all familiar with with uh, virtual reality computer games. Okay, now all virtual realities have certain attributes in common, and if we just think about that for a minute, we can we can understand some very profound things about ourselves and about consciousness. So let's look at the at the uh, virtual reality game. This is an old one, and uh, I don't know that kids still play it anymore. But it's the one I know because when my when my uh, my kids were in those uh, teenage years, they played World of Warcraft and they played uh, a few other games. But that was the one that sticks in my mind because that's the one they played the most. So I use that as an example. Anyway, in World of Warcraft, we have characters like elves. And these elves are called avatars. And we are the player. In other words, we sit at the computer and we log into World of Warcraft and our elf and we make all the decisions for that elf. In other words, we are the consciousness for that elf. We uh, tell it to, you know, stand up. It does. We tell it to fight or tell it to run. Whatever we tell it to do. It executes that to the best of its ability within the constraints of the game. So if we tell it, jump 20 feet in the air, well, it won't do that because the rule set in the game doesn't allow it. So that that avatar is restricted, constrained by the rule set of that particular uh, video game. Now, 
we, the consciousness, don't live inside that, that world of Warcraft. We have to be outside of that. So from the elf's perspective, the choice maker is outside of that virtual reality. In other words, outside the world of Warcraft reality. The choice maker, us, consciousness, can't be inside the reality with the elf. It has to be outside of that reality. The same is true as the computer. It's impossible, it's illogical for the computer to be a part of that virtual reality where the elf lives. The computer that's computing that reality has to be outside of the reality that it computes. You see, a, a simulation doesn't compute itself, so the, it gets computed in some other reality frame other than the one that the elf lives in. Now, if we take that and translate it to ourselves, then here we are in this virtual reality called our physical universe, and our body is our avatar, and we are consciousness. Okay, that's what we are. We're the choice maker. We decide what to do and when to do it. And the avatar, our body, accommodates that to the extent that the rule set allows it. It only can do those things that the rule set says that it can do. Okay, well, where did this rule set come from in this, this, this virtual reality? Well, it wasn't programmed like the world of Warcraft. It just evolved. It started with some initial conditions and a rule set, and the run button was hit, and according to the rule set, you know, things interacted and changed, and eventually it evolved to our physical universe, our planet, and us. That was just the, you know, an evolution. So that's all done in a computer, in a simulation. And we are consciousness that exists outside of that simulation that make choices for that character. Now, in the world of Warcraft, you, the consciousness, are only a part-time consciousness for that elf because you can always put that game on pause and go do something else and then come back and play a while. It's not like that in our game. We as consciousness are um, submerged. It's an immersive game. So we're immersed in the experience of our avatar. And that is our experience. That's all we do. We uh, start with that avatar at its birth or probably before its birth and we get those experiences as data in a data stream to us, just like we get the experiences of our elf from the server in a data stream to us, and then we learn how to interpret those, uh, you know, that data, those experiences, and that's what we do. That's called a free will awareness unit in my, in my book, and, and that is in totally immersed in the experience of that avatar. So now that kind of sets the tone for what this reality is like and what a, a simulation reality is like. The physical universe is a simulation. Consciousness is fundamental. And consciousness um, survives, of course, the death of its avatar, just like you, as a World of Warcraft player, survive the death of your elf. So when your elf gets beaten up and uh, gets killed, well, you just, what, go back to the graveyard and uh, pick up your elf and uh, run back to the, to the scene of the crime, pick up all your implements, and you go on. Keep right on playing. Well, we don't do it exactly like that, but it's something similar. You know, when our avatar dies, we as consciousness um, go on to uh, find another avatar and get back in the game. That's kind of the works the same way. 
Otherwise, you couldn't learn much. You see, if you only got one shot at the World of Warcraft, if somebody said, well, you can play this game until your elf gets killed, and then you're done. You can't play it anymore. Well, that wouldn't work too well, because your elf is going to get killed very easily, because that's uh, the nature of the game, and you would never actually learn very much as far as strategy and competence and how to do things and you know what was going on in that game. You'd never get very good at it if you only had just one shot at it. And any game that's very complicated at all, that's true. You're not very good at playing cards the first time you play you know, a card game. Yeah. Not very good at driving a car the first time you get behind the wheel. Anything that has any complexity to it takes iterative learning. You have to, you know, you have to first learn to get to step A before you can get to step B, before you can get step C, and, and if you work at it, you can get better and better. But so is, uh, you know, so is this game we're in. So consciousness tends to just keep on going, get back in the game with another with another avatar, not the same avatar like World of Warcraft, but a, a different avatar. But the experience, what you learn, accumulates. And that's the point of being a player in this game is that we get to make choices. And by those choices, we get to evolve or if we make bad choices, de-evolve the uh, quality of our consciousness. We get to lower our entropy or raise our entropy based on those choices. So think of it as a as an entropy reduction trainer simulator, sort of like a flight simulator, except instead of learning to fly a plane, we're learning to reduce the entropy of our consciousness. So that's one way to, to, to look at this uh, reality frame from a simulation hypothesis. Yeah. Would you say that there's a larger intelligence to this consciousness? The larger consciousness? Of course it's, it's intelligent. Uh, it's a piece of consciousness. We are a subset of it. So if we credit ourselves with any intelligence, then we have to credit the superset uh, of which we are a part with intelligence. Uh, wouldn't make sense that uh, we're a subset of this consciousness system and uh, we're intelligent, but it isn't. Of course, it's an intelligent system. Uh, it was intelligent enough to design and begin the simulation of which we play in, in this virtual world. So the, the rule set and the initial conditions were chosen in order to produce a stable simulation. And that probably wasn't done on the first try. I expect there were tens of thousands, if not millions of iterations of trial and error before it evolved the ability to have just the right constants with just the right rule set so that a good simulation evolved and evolved um, avatars that were then useful for consciousness to uh, to make choices for, so it um, you know it, it's not really the same as World of Warcraft in that sense. It's an evolved uh, virtual reality, but surely consciousness is a is a uh, a very intelligent system. Mm. So is this why you why do you think it's like a virtual reality has been created? Like it's an evolutionary process. Right. It's just an evolutionary process. You see, consciousness is an information system. That's what it does. It just trades and, and transmits and receives information. That's mm. its nature. Now, information systems can, can evolve by creating more information, better information, more useful information. And information mm. systems can devolve, which means dissipate, go away, die by... Uh, 
or should we say getting rid of information by by uh, becoming random if yeah. you have if you have all random bits you have no information because randomness contains no information now if you can take some of those bits and structure them in some meaningful way ah, you've just defined information there's some point some purpose to that uh, to that structure that you gave those bits and that's information so a, a um, description of high entropy says that there is lots of randomness and low entropy says there's lots of organization that's just a physics term that uh, talks about uh, the degree of organization or randomness that something has in terms of this word called entropy so low entropy is lots of organization and structure and high entropy is lots of randomness or, or very little organization and structure so that's what consciousness does. It has to evolve. It wants to, you know, we said it was intelligent. Well, it wants to stay alive. It wants to stay in business. It uh, doesn't, doesn't want to dissolve into just randomness and disappear. So what it does is it wants to lower its entropy. And it's created this virtual reality for pieces of itself, that's us, individuated units of consciousness, to... Uh, log into this game, pick an avatar, and practice making choices that lower entropy or increase it, that add structure and content and value, or that add randomness and, and dysfunction and, and uh, you know, take away value. So that's what mm -hmm. we're doing here, and that's our purpose. That's our job here is to basically grow up. And there's one other point then I'd like to make is um, I won't necessarily go through the logic of it, but as it turns out, we can equate in a social system like we are, that's a whole bunch of individuated units of consciousness interacting with each other, uh, with their avatars. In a social system, the optimal way of interaction is caring about other. It's being cooperative. It's working together. That optimizes um, low entropy in a social system. And we call that then love. The high entropy in a social system is fear. Uh, it's the, just the opposite. It's only caring about self. It's me against everybody else kind of an attitude. Uh, there's no trust. There's no um, uh, sense of uh, wanting to cooperate because everybody's just out trying to maximize themselves. Um, we have... Uh, Groups getting together to protect themselves from other groups forming in that society rather than uh, everybody trying to help uh, uh, cooperate with each other. So we call that side fear. So you see, you can de-evolve toward fear or evolve toward love. So now when we're talking about our purpose is to lower the entropy of our consciousness, now we can say equivalently our purpose is to grow up to become love, to increase the quality of our consciousness. And some people would call that spiritual growth. Mm, I completely agree. And to be honest, it seems to be the most beautifully constructed game in the world. Like it, It's created this existence that holds people down, but it's also created a beautiful understanding that we are connected to something much higher. Like The human emotion and reality of self seems too complex to be a game, but the sense of realism is what keeps us playing and even evolving through it? Like, would you say there's a lot more other virtual realities for us to explore? Oh, yes. Uh, this is not the only virtual re reality. You see, 
Their consciousness is fundamental. Consciousness is an information system. And as consciousness needs to interact with other consciousness, um, and the original consciousness that uh, created all of this, that's what we're calling the larger consciousness system, is really all of it, it uh, subdivided itself into pieces so that these pieces could interact with each other because that allowed for more novelty, which allowed for more creation, which allowed for lower entropy. You see, just interacting with yourself is kind of a limited game. But if you have multiple entities interacting with each other, of course, with free will, they have to be able to make those choices, uh, their own choices. Uh, then you have all sorts of other things that can happen and take place. Lots of novelty, lots of uh, unexpected things can happen. And that gives us a much greater potential for creation of structure and, and meaning. So that's what happens. So we have all these pieces. They interact with each other. And in the process of doing that, they make choices. Okay, so then it's these choices are the key thing that uh, that evolves us one way or the other, or de-evolves us. It's the quality of the choices we make. So now we were in a situation of just uh, you know individual units of consciousness communicating with each other, but there's very little traction in that. There's not a lot of uh, quick growth in that because there's there's no you know, you don't really know when you're just getting and giving information. It's like being in a big chat room. If you were in a yeah. chat room with 100,000 people and there were no rules, you just chatted with these people. Well, it'd be hard to learn much because you'd never have any real assurance of who you were talking to was or, you know, thought the way they were talking to you. You know, they, yeah. they may be just making stuff up and just having fun or something. You don't know. It's really hard to get that's what I mean by hard to get traction. It's hard to know what effect you're having on them, what effect they're having on you. Everybody's guessing, and nobody really knows what the score is. So we have this reality with rule with a tighter rule set, not just the rule set of communications protocols. That's the that's kind of the the uh, the first virtual reality was just communication protocols. You see, then. Then we got virtual realities with more uh, constraints than that. And finally, we end up with this virtual reality of ours that has uh, quite a bit of constraints. So now we get feedback. When we uh, act in certain ways, that causes other entities to act in certain ways, which causes us to act in different ways. And it's an easy track to see where our choices are taking us and what sort of result are they causing. And are they increasing entropy or decreasing entropy? And now we have some feedback in this school so that we can learn better. But yes, there's lots of other virtual realities. The, like I say, the simplest is just communication protocols. So there's, there's hundreds of different sorts of virtual realities at all different levels of rule set. Ours is a fairly, our universe here is a fairly tight rule set. Um, what's the rules? Well, we dig them out all the time. We call that science. That's, Science tries to discover what the rules of this uh, virtual reality are. And, uh, you know, things, you know, our chemistry, our physics, our biology are all uh, involved in understanding how it works, which means what are the rules of the, of the game here. So that's a pretty, uh, pretty tight rule set. It, uh, you know, there's a lot of things we can't do, a lot of constraints on us. We not only can't jump 20 feet in the air, but 
you know, we can't learn differential equation, differential equations in an afternoon. We yeah. can't uh, flap our arms and fly. There's just a whole lot of things that we can't do. We can't uh, breathe underwater and on and on and on with our list of, uh, of constraints that we have. And uh, the more constraints, then the, that means the more rules, the tighter the rule set. So when, when, we, when we die, for instance, when our avatar dies, not we, the consciousness, we don't die, but when this avatar dies, we end up then becoming aware in a, another virtual reality. It's not, as, uh, um, it's not as constrained as the one we're in, but it's yet a different virtual reality. So we have consciousness that's fundamental, just, just fundamental consciousness, and then everything else that's experiential, everything else where you can experience, where you can interact, is a virtual reality. So mm-hmm. everything's a virtual reality other than consciousness itself. Mm-hmm. When you, um, you touched on fear before, I think in the society we're virtually like fear-based. And I think we're built upon the premises where we let, in, let fear in many cases shape us and determine our reality. But I was wondering what you think about what you think fear is and why have we created it? Do you think that we have to get rid of fear? Fear is, you might say, a, you know, that's a high entropy state. So it's a, it's a lack of love. It's uh, um, some, it's, it's a consciousness that has not evolved very far, far exhibits fear. Fear is, is primarily about self. It's about you. If you're frightened, it's not, you know, it's not really that you're frightened for someone else or because of something else. You're frightened because of what it does to you. It's a very self-centered, self-focused uh, um, feeling or uh, it's not just a feeling, but, but a way of seeing the world. So fearful people are very self-focused. It's about them. Oh, no, you know, this is going to happen to me. I won't get enough of what I need or this will happen or my children will grow up and be, you know, drug addicts. See, that's a fear. But it's not yeah. just a fear for the children. It's a fear for you. You don't want that. You don't want those children to do that. You want them to do something else. And it's about you not getting what you want. So even if it seems to be about other people, it's still about you. So fear is, is the, uh, you know, that, that's what we express when we express high entropy. Fear is very, uh, divisive. It, uh, tears things apart. You know, if you're fearful that you're not going to get everything that you need, then maybe you just decide to take what you need from somebody else who has it. Mm-hmm. Um, or you're afraid somebody else is going to take your stuff, so you, uh, um, you know, have to defend what what's yours, and you're fearful that others will take it, or you're fearful of, you know, of whatever it is. It's a, it's a, some, it's a thing that uh, you can't build up very much in a fearful place because anything you construct will be either taken from you or torn down because of others who you know don't have that themselves and they tear down what others have that's a fearful uh, approach to things so it's the it's the high entropy course and most of us uh, are fundamentally riddled with fear. We have fears about all kinds of things. We have fears about being inadequate, fears about uh, being ignorant, fears that people won't like us, that we're not worthy, and it goes on and on and on, that we're not confident, that 
lots and lots of fears that uh, make us the way we are. We have we have fears about uh, you know our relationships and how those relationships will work out. We focus on what we don't have that we want rather than what we can give to somebody else. So all of that is fear, and we are full of that because we are not that grown up yet as far as becoming love. So yeah. what, what we are instead of love is, is fear, and it's pretty common. When I say this is a schoolhouse, it's not a college or a graduate school. It's more like an elementary school or daycare. Where we are at the beginnings of trying to develop ourselves into becoming love. We're not in the almost there. We're in the just getting started phase, and that means there's lots and lots of fear. Now, fear creates ego. Ego is, uh, is you know, about self, and fear also creates belief. When you're frightened, you have lots of beliefs, lots of justifications, and, and uh, that sort of thing. Well, there's some great information on all this, and it's, it's very hard to absorb as well, but I, something I can think about is information. So in terms, if the system does want us to succeed, let's say, wouldn't you say that every correct decision would just be to feed us it? Or would you say there's like a learning mechanism where within the evolutionary process? Oh, sure. That's the whole point of evolution. I mean, evolution means that you go out and try this or that or other things. You, you, know, you do your best at the, the situation you have, and then you learn. You grow. You evolve. You become more. If you don't evolve, then you're just static. And yeah. anything static is not stable. Things that don't grow tend to, you know, go the other way. They fall apart. If you don't keep trying to reduce entropy, entropy just naturally grows on its own. So if you sit around and do nothing, your entropy grows. If you keep working on lowering that entropy, then you can succeed. Mm. Thomas, I was wondering, um, how does beings like Christ or God or higher powers play into the system? Well, well, let's start with the, with the God uh, uh, thing first. Now, everybody has a different viewpoint of what is God, you know, what, is, what does God mean? And yeah. for many um, who are not evolved in the, in the uh, dogma or the ritual of their religion, you know, they find that God is not a, you know, it's not a little old man playing with these pet people, you know, it's not that kind of an image. They see it in a bigger picture. Um, more of a all that is kind of uh, um, uh, you know, an overarching force, if you will, that yeah. is the creator. You know, they see it that way. And if you have that kind of a big picture view of God, then it fits very well with this concept of the larger consciousness system. You see, that larger consciousness system is the is the creator of uh, the rest of everything, because. You know, we are pieces of it. So it's a system of which we're a part. And that uh, leads us to the idea that we're really all one because we're all pieces of the same, of the same system. We all communicate with each other. We're all netted. So in that sense, um, you know, the larger consciousness system kind of serves that role. But now this system is not perfect. It's not infinite. It's a finite, imperfect system that is in the process of evolving. So it's not a static. It's not like it's done. It's perfect. It's not done. It's an evolving system. 
constantly growing. And we, in our virtual reality, are part of that evolutionary process. You see, we're a part of it. So as we grow up, it grows up. As we lower our entropy, we're a part of it, then it has its entropy lowered too. So we're part of that process. So if we think of it that way, then we don't have the, the, uh, a lot of the, the attributes that, uh, that religious people often uh, give their God, which is, you know, infinite, perfect, uh, that sort of thing. And, and, uh, but I think if you, if you uh, have a bigger picture of, of God, then the larger consciousness system fits that, should fit that picture pretty well. And I say that because I was on a, on a stage a few years back with several, um, um, uh, well, should we say, they, they had degrees in theology. Okay, They were uh, ministers, had uh, degrees in theology. And I asked them, I said, what are the attributes of God? If you had to describe, you know, what are the fundamental attributes? And they thought about it a while. And because they weren't particularly dogmatic, they uh, came up with a list of five or six or seven things that uh, were what they thought were the attributes of God. And the larger consciousness system fit the description of all of those attributes. So that's why I, I kind of came to that conclusion. That's not, that's not where I started, but uh, I, saw the, I saw the logic in that and I kind of accepted that it does, uh, it does meet that need. Now, what about, uh, you know, saints and Jesus and Buddha and all of that uh, sort of thing? Well, that works several ways. People do grow up, and as they grow up, they can distinguish themselves as being uh, particularly more loving and caring than, than others, and that uh, may make them a, a big fish in a small pond of wherever their culture is. Also, uh, the larger consciousness system, and we said it was intelligent, in the process of trying to make this learning lab more efficient, you know, it can arrange for some entities that are pretty grown to come here from time to time just to be a good example, you know, just to uh, give us some some uh, some examples of what it's like to live a low entropy existence. So all of that uh, can occur and, and does occur. Mm -hmm. Something I've been really looking into lately a lot, which in my view I fully believe and also really ties well into your theory as well, is how we can create a certain outcome by visualization or even projecting or setting out positive thoughts. For a certain, yes. like for creating a future outcome, yes. do you think that we can create like situations or even create a future reality within our own mind? Sure, that's the nature of this reality. The way that works is as part of the feedback of this virtual reality uh, is that you get to modify future probability. Okay, now the future is not a done deal. We all have free will, so we can do what we please with our choices, with our free will. But if we look at the system as a whole, there are a lot of things that we can predict. If we look at uh, exactly the state of our existence now, now let's say we, when I say we, let's say we're the larger consciousness system. So if we look at this virtual reality and all the players and all the, all the choices that all the players have made in this life and in previous lives, we can have a pretty good idea of what's likely to happen next. So we can kind of write down all the probabilities of all the choices and what they're likely to be. And then we can say, and if that's true, you know, if, if uh, we guessed right, then what would likely be the next step? And we can write that down too. And we can do this out just as far as we want. 
But of course, the farther we go, the rattier it gets because each one of those assumptions <laughs> that the last one we figured out, you know, is going to be right is probably not right. But anyway, it can, it can create this, uh, what I call the virtual reality, uh, virtual future. Let me get this right. It's the potential, you know, potential future database that is all the things that, that, uh, could happen in the future and the probability that they would happen. So we have that database. And if you go too far out, it gets pretty ratty. But if you're real close in, like a couple of, you know, milliseconds from now, it's probably pretty good because guessing what's going to happen a millisecond from now isn't too hard. You know, it's, um, that's a, that's a pretty easy thing to do. So it, it works its way out a little bit at a time and we get to modify that probability. So it makes it more likely or less likely that things will happen. Now, in as much as there is uncertainty, okay, so let's say there's uncertainty about a certain event that uh, this might, you know, it could come about. It's not that it's impossible, but it's uncertain. And a lot of other conditions may have to fall in place before that event could happen. By us using our focused intent, we can modify the probability, which makes it more likely that those things will fall in place to make that event happen. So we get to, in a way, create our own reality because what we, what we get is a reflection of who we are and what we are. So that's why people who are generally very positive, very upbeat, uh, you know, smile a lot, have good attitudes, life just seems to fall out pretty well for those kinds of people. And the people who are miserable and unhappy and have this attitude that life sucks and I, you know, you know, the only luck I have is bad luck, you know, this sort of thing. And they're very negative about reality. Well, they tend to leave, leave, uh, they tend to live lives that are more negative and, yeah. and stuff that isn't nice, you know, tends to happen to them. Well, it's because they create it. You see, we do create a lot of what happens to us. Those in that uncertainty, where there's uncertainty, then we can manipulate how that uncertainty unfolds by our intent. Now, if we intend that something, you know, moves to the right and somebody else intends that something, that same thing moves to the left, now we are uh, pushing one way, other people are pushing the other way, and you get the sum total of all of that pushing and pulling, and that's what most likely happens. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not that you can change everything to be the way you want it, but you can influence things more toward the way you want them if you have a focused intent. Now, most people don't have a very strong focused intent because their minds are very unruly. They can't keep their mind on one subject for more than just a few seconds before it's off doing something else. And that gives them a very weak or dilute intent because they're not, um, they can't focus very well. And the solution for that is meditation, is learning to uh, quiet your mind and make your mind a less noisy landscape so that uh, it it focuses uh, clearly and cleanly. Mm-hmm. I think as well that even ties really well into the placebo effect and how we can personally use expectation of, let's say, a particular outcome to alter our internal state as well as our external reality. And solely through the action of our mind, you can even heal your own body as well yes. without the need for any external influences. That's correct. We can, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty 
around uh, how the body heals. Uh, there's not a whole lot is known about exactly how that works. There's lots of things that are that happen in medicine that are unusual. You know, people who are very, very ill and they suddenly get better and people who are completely well and very healthy suddenly get worse. And there's lots of things that are unknown. That gives us lots of uncertainty. And with all of that uncertainty, then it makes it easier for us to um, manipulate that uncertainty to come out the way we like it. So yes, that's how the placebo effect works. You know, the placebo, like I mentioned before, is a much studied effect. It's probably got thousands of studies have been done on it. And it just yes. is a fact that if you have a positive attitude toward the outcome in your, in your uh, health, you will get better um, than if you have a negative outcome. It just makes a big difference. So they do the placebo effect with statistics. They uh, will pass out, you know, tell a bunch of people with liver problems, oh, we got this perfect, you know, this wonderful little magic liver pill that's brand new, good science, and uh, it just cures everybody, and we're going to give you this terrific pill, and uh, you will get better. And instead of giving them a magic pill, they give them a pill made out of sawdust or sugar or some other kind of benign thing, and they find out that a lot of the patients do get better. And it's not that these patients just think they're better or mask their symptoms or something, they actually get better as opposed yeah. to a control group that, you know, wasn't uh, given this placebo. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in order to sell medicine today, the medicine has to beat the placebo effect. It has to actually make more people better than does the placebo effect. And a lot of drug manufacturers have a real hard time beating that placebo effect. It's not necessarily... And it's an easy effect to beat. It's a it's a very uh, strong effect, actually. Mm. Thomas, you mentioned meditation before, but how else can we get out of this system of this current reality, like to get to the point where we all fully understand this virtual reality system? Well, meditation is the kind of a a standard route. But when I say meditation, uh, I mean that in a very general way. You can just sit down and be quiet and uh, let your mind focus on a single thing, and we would call that meditation. So it doesn't have to be formal meditation, but all meditation is is learning to focus your mind and your intent on a single thing of your choice rather than, than having your mind constantly jabbering and running this way and that. So that's what meditation does. So that's a good start. Now, once you get some control of your mind to where you can focus it and, and stay uh, on, a, on a single subject for a fairly long time, let's say a half hour or an hour, then your intent is much more powerful at modifying future reality. It's more powerful at uh, you know, healing yourself and that sort of things because you can, you can focus uh, more clearly on, the, on uh, what you, you know, are trying to accomplish. So at that point, there are a couple of things that are really easy to do. And if a person really seriously tries for, you know, three or four months, um, they could find success. And that is, one, healing. Uh, healing self or others. And the other is remote viewing. Uh, being able to... Uh, intuit what's going on or what a particular area looks like or what's happening in that area uh, when you have no, you know, no knowledge of it or no way of doing it. In other words, just in, intuit 
what a certain set of coordinates, you know, and, and what's there at, that, at those coordinates. That's called remote viewing. And both mm -hmm. of those things, remote viewing and healing, aren't hard at all. I, like I say, in three months, if a person were serious, that means they work on it every day, maybe even a couple of times a day. Maybe it would be as much as an hour, an hour a day, or maybe an hour and a half a day. If they did that, in three months, they would realize that they were having an effect. They were actually changing the outcome of reality based on their focused intent. Now, again, it's going to have to be statistical. You have to do it a hundred times, 500 times, and then you have to keep track of the results. If, uh, if let's say you try to heal 500 times and, you know, half of it, 250 times they got better and the other 250 times they didn't, well, yeah. that gives you a 50-50. You're probably not doing anything at all. One might expect, <laughs> one might expect that and just a random, you know, people get better, right? They don't, you know, that's not necessarily anything that you're doing. But if instead of 50-50, it comes out something like, uh, you know, 95-5 or 80-20 and you, and you've, uh, you know, are careful with the way you do it and, uh, and make sure that you follow up on experiences that the people have and so on, then you can come to a pretty good conclusion that you are, um, you know, having some sort of an effect because it's way off of the 50-50, which is what you would randomly expect. So it just takes time. It takes some months and work every day and probably six months for sure you should have information. For many people, three months would be enough. So these are things that anybody could commit themselves to doing for a few months and discover how the nature of this reality works on their own firsthand. Wow. Wow, that's incredible. Thomas, uh, I'm still a bit blown away by that last question. Yeah. <laughs> Thomas, something that really interests me, and I would like to know is your take on past lives. Do you believe like we are brought back into this game to influence the next generation with this new consciousness, or is that it, game over? Oh, well, past lives, uh, the idea that what I guess in the Hindu uh, theology they call reincarnation, right? And in my, I like to stay away from religious terms because they carry so much baggage. I just talk about experience packets, but it's the same thing. So yes, that's, as we said earlier, that's important. You can't learn, you can't significantly make much progress in a one shot. It's just too complex and too much to do. So you need to make this a cumulative learning experience so that every time you come back, you make good decisions and you gain a little, um, you know, more advantage on becoming love. You move in that direction. You evolve rather than devolve. And then the next time you come around, you're in a little better position to start. So every time you start a little higher up on the scale, if you keep evolving each time, if you de-evolve, then you start, you know, a little lower on that uh, evolutionary uh, scale. So that's what we're doing. And yes, we influence everybody else. So it's not that we just come back in order to help other people. Well, that's true in some extent. But it's not really our fundamental thing is to grow up ourselves. We, we are the only person that we can change. We cannot change other people, but we can mm. be a good example to other people. We can show them what low entropy consciousness is like, you see. And because we're all netted, our success is picked up on by other people. 
and uh, they then would try to emulate us. They they see that it's possible that everybody doesn't have to be miserable all the time. It's a it's a possible thing. So we do help other people as we grow up. But yeah, it, you have to recycle. It's not a one shot thing. It's too complex a, a system to expect to do much as far as growing up and learning in a in a single shot. So we come back and come back uh, just like we do with that elf. You know, when we play the World of Warcraft and our elf dies, that's not it for that elf. We go, mm-hmm. we go back and play again. Well, we play that same elf. That doesn't happen in, in our reality. We play a different one each time. But uh, we get to keep all the knowledge and skill that we've learned uh, from all of our uh, experiences in playing elves. We get to use that for the new elf. So we all, we start at a little higher up on the on the learning curve every time we go back. So that's the way uh, you know reincarnation isn't just a good idea. It's a logical uh, it, it's logically necessary for this whole uh, uh, system to work. If you don't have that, then the system falls apart. And further on, if we take the logic of this system, and that includes the reincarnation, and take it further further along. We find out that the same logic then derives things like uh, C being a constant, uh, Y particles are probability distributions, which is the core uh, unknown in quantum mechanics, uh, uh, that kind of thing. It, it, it does better science. It explains um, much of modern science. Much of the uh, paradoxes in modern science get explained with the same logic that's based on the same logical premises that requires reincarnation. So I don't have reincarnation in this theory because I like it or I believe in it. I have reincarnation in this theory because logic demands it. it uh, it's required to be in there. Otherwise, the system doesn't work. Yeah. Well, well Thomas, uh, what would happen if all of society came to this conclusion of a higher consciousness and we all embraced the love? Well, what is the next stage of human evolution? Like, What do you believe it is? Well, uh, I think it would be a, a, an immense breakthrough if everyone got serious about getting rid of their fear and about becoming cooperative and caring about other people. That would make this a nicer place to live and would give us, uh, um, you know, a kind of a wonderful environment to uh, to grow up in. So I think that would that would uh, be great. But what is the next? What's the next step in evolution? Yeah. Well, we can take our, you know, this is a fractal system, so patterns repeat. And take a look at what's happened in the in our biology. Okay, you have, you start off with a single cell, and it was just a cell, and we can call that a bacteria, if you like. So we start off with this single cell bacteria, and it, uh, it uh, divides itself, right, into lots of pieces, and those pieces divide themselves. So we end up with lots of bacteria, and that probably existed for a few million years, maybe a hundred million years, and then eventually the bacteria learned to cooperate and work together. It wasn't just about them individually, but they started to to, uh, group up and cooperate with each other, and that's when we had multi-celled things. And the Mm -hmm. multi-celled things were kind of a different sort of critter, because they had now specialization, you see. So we had multi-celled Things that uh, turned into eventually things like jellyfish, okay? Not nature's smartest creature, perhaps, but there it is. has lots and lots of cells, you know, millions of cells that are all cooperating, and they have 
learned to work different functions. They become specialists. So you have the part that is the, you know, the digestion part and the part that's the locomotion that moves it part and the part that's defensive and so on. You have all these various uh, cell groups working together as a whole. Well, that's now a lower entropy, higher organization, right? More, more structure to a, to a jellyfish than there is to just a bunch of individual bacteria. So they have reduced their entropy through cooperation and working together. So now we, you know, we uh, take human beings and what is our next step? Well, we're going to emulate those bacteria. We need to learn to work together, to cooperate, to become loved, to make it about other rather than ourselves. And then we will create something bigger than ourselves that way. It won't just be a bunch of individual humans running around thinking, what about me? It will be uh, something else. We'll create a bigger thing, a bigger entity, if you will. And no, we're not all going to you know, stick together shoulder to shoulder like bacteria. That's not the way humans do it. You know, we're all going to be individuals, but we will all be optimized as individuals as well. In other words, mm -hmm. we will all have our free will. We will all have our, our free choices. We'll have lots more um, decision space, a lot more choices that we can make. So it, it's a win for everybody. Everybody ends up optimized. And the thing that we create, this one world family that we create, takes on a, a function of its own. You see, we become a piece of something bigger than just us. And... Uh, that's then where we go. That's where we go next. That's our, that's our next thing is to learn how to cooperate, to learn how to share, learn how to love. And when we do that, we will all be optimized. We will have a, a life that is um, as efficient as it can be. We will have things to do, choices to make. Nobody will be forced to do anything that they really don't want to do because what entities will want to do is to be helpful and to care about others. That's what they will want to do, you see, and it, uh, it just works. And so that's where we're going. And I'd say that's inevitable. We will get there because mm -hmm. evolution, you know, is a, is a machine that just slowly changes and changes. It takes the output of the last change and that becomes the input, you know, for the next change. And it just keeps going, and eventually it will get to the most efficient and effective um, structure possible. And that's what that's what that will be. It will be when we are all cooperating and caring for each other. So that will happen. Now, whether that's going to take another, you know, uh, ten thousand years, or whether we can do that in, uh, you know, fifty years, that isn't known. But that's, wow. that's where we need to go. And if we all kind of had the idea that that's where we were going, we certainly would get there a lot quicker because you can play a much better game if you know what the rules are than if you're just wandering around clueless in the outfield, you know, wondering uh, what is this game anyway? And what are, what are we supposed to be doing here? Uh, people have no clue like that. Uh, they still, they still uh, progress if they try to make good choices. But they'd progress a lot faster if they actually knew the game that they were in. So, yes, if we all understood it, 
it would be marvelous. Maybe in 20 years we could get to that point of being a, a one world family. And that's not one world family where everybody does what they're told. It's one world family where everybody has the free choice to do as they please. And yes, that works. And people say, well, that could never work. If everybody did as they please, all we'd all be fighting. But that's because you're thinking in terms of fear, the way we are now. Mm-hmm. But what we would please in that, in that scenario would be to care and to help. What could we give, you see, instead of what can I, you know, what can I get? It's what can I give? So everybody would be fulfilled and have those choices. And it would not be uh, a constant uh, struggle about everybody trying to, you know, get what everybody else has. That's the fear-based idea. The love-based idea is everybody wants to be as helpful and useful as possible. Well, Thomas, you really painted the picture on what is going to be the next level. And we really do so appreciate you being on our podcast. We'd just like to ask you now, Tom, where can people find you and what are you currently working on? Okay, um, where people can find me. Uh, I should say that what you heard in this very short discussion that we've had, uh, you know, it doesn't give you much to go on as far as facts. Uh, in a short talk like this, I can't derive things. I just make statements. But I will tell all your listeners that all these statements do have uh, a logical derivation behind them. And if you want to see the logic that answers your questions, oh, well, that doesn't make sense. You know, how could that work? Well, there's an answer to that kind of a question, and you'll find it uh, several places. One, I've got this trilogy of books out. They're free on Google Books, so you can look for them in there. They're also available at Amazon and, and other, you know, all the usual places you buy books, you can find those. Uh, I also have videos on YouTube, about, uh, I don't know, 250 videos. All of my workshops and talks and interviews, and this interview will end up there too, I'm sure, uh, all end up on YouTube. And uh, you can learn a great deal just by watching videos and don't ever have to read the books, um, although the books will probably give you more detail than what's, uh, what's in the interviews. The interviews and, and uh, lectures and workshops will probably give you more of the science and more of the physics because I didn't really want to put that in the books. I wanted the books to be kind of books for everybody and not get very technical in those books. Uh, so you have those places. I have a forum. Um, if you go to my website, www.mybigtoe.com, uh, you'll find uh, uh, not only will that take you to the YouTube site, but it'll also take you to the forum. And I guess I should say the reason I called it My Big Toe wasn't because I was so proud of it that it's mine. I called it My Big Toe because... If it's not your experience, it can't be your truth. So you really do have to to find out for yourself if this description of reality works for you. Is it what you experience uh, if you try these things? If you get rid of fear, does it improve your life and make you, uh, you know, happy and full of joy? If you, uh, you know, can you heal yourself? Can you remote view? These things you need to find out on your own. And yeah. It doesn't make any difference, you know, whether you believe me or not. Belief is the enemy. It's not useful. Whether you believe me or disbelieve me won't do you any good in either case. You have to go find out for yourself. So uh, um, that's why it's my big toe. It's My big toe is just a a starting point, a launch platform for your own big toe to where you have your own set of experiences and come to your own conclusions about what those experiences mean. 
So it's not about me convincing you that what I'm telling you is the truth. Yeah. It's about me giving you a structure wherein you can find the truth for yourself. That's really what this this is uh, this is all about. I liked how you said that at the end, and I would just like to say as well, thank you so much for being an absolute incredible guest. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm uh, glad to be here. I hope your listeners uh, get something out of this that they can use. Oh, yeah, definitely. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys, for taking time out of your day to boost your consciousness. But, guys, we really need your help. If you're loving the podcast, please pop over and leave us a review and tell us what you think. And also, don't forget to head over to our website at ascendbodymind.com check out our amazing gallery of other great episodes thank you and have a great day and join us next week in the next episode peace